Hey everyone, this is TechCrunch Live, where we help founders build better venture-backed businesses. I'm Matt Burns, and I'm gonna be honest, I'm not a climate tech expert. I drive a big truck and my air conditioner is currently running, but we have two amazing people on the show today that are leading voices on the technology and investments that go into funding climate tech. I'm thrilled to have them on the show today. And what's more, they're experts on building and maintaining successful investor and founder relationships. That's key here, especially important on startups with extra long development cycles. Gia Schneider, co-founder and CEO of Natel Energy, spent years developing the underlying technology before receiving VC investment, and including an investment from Breakthrough Energy Ventures, you, you know, the leading climate VC fund founded in part by Bill Gates. Representing Breakthrough Energy Ventures is Libby Wayman. She's a partner at the firm and without question, one of the most knowledgeable climate investors out there. Before we start, I need to point out that TechCrunch is hosting a one-day in-person event next week at Berkeley, California. The speaker lineup reads like a who's who of climate tech founders and investors, and that includes Bill Gates, who will be speaking on stage with our own Daryl Etherington. Because of that event, I get next week off, but this show will be back the following week with a conversation on building on-demand startups. For today's show, you can watch and listen on YouTube, Facebook, and, and Twitter. But if you're on Hopin, and the link should be available in all those services, you can ask questions and apply for pitch practice. And I'm going to take questions live today. I don't know how it'll go, but we're going to try it. So please jump through Hopin's hoops and uh, give me something good to ask. With that, uh, let's bring on Libby and Gia. Hey there. How are you guys? Great. How are you? Good. Hey, Matt. Hey, Gia. Doing great. That, thank you so much for being here today. This is, this is really exciting for me. I, I think this is going to be a great conversation. We've talked a lot about how investors like to have updates and, and keep involved in companies as they grow. And I think this is a great conversation to have with you too. So Gia, uh, let, let's start with you. Uh, Natel Energy was founded in 2009. And how much have you raised to date? Raised about 65 million to date. Yeah, that's great. And you uh, brought along a pitch deck with you today, and it, it's beautiful. It's one of the best looking pitch decks I've, I've seen. So very, very well done on that. Well, thanks. It's I, I do think that, um, well, it, it really, the credit goes to other folks on my team who take the ideas and content and make it look really great. So yeah, it does look good. And we're going to get right to that right off to the top. But mm -hmm. I want to start back in 2005. Mm -hmm. I, I understand you started the project in 2005, founded the company in 2009, and then raised your first serious VC money in 2014. Is that right? About thereabouts, right? Yeah. 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 It definitely had a long, long, long period from kind of the initial idea and thought process to when we were able to you know, go through the journey on capital and product. Yeah. When you think back to those early days, 10, 15 years ago, what, what drove you to keep going? I, well, at the end of the day, the focus for myself and my co-founder um, has really been climate change. And at the end of the day, hydropower is, well, climate change, big picture, is you know one of the two, we see twin crises or, or issues that we really have to address, biodiversity being the other. And hydropower is currently the world's largest source of renewable energy. 
we can do 10x the hydro, you know, 10x um, the current resource that we have installed and operating today. We can you know, uh, substantially increase that um, with the right technology. And if we do it in the right way, we can also help um, address some of the sustainability challenges that have historically um, been issues with kind of the older way, I guess, that we have developed hydropower. And so that combination of um, hydro sitting at the, in a very interesting way at the nexus of energy, water, and climate, which kind of has been our North Star from the very beginning is, is that, you know, can we create a better way, basically, to yeah. do hydro? Well, let's bring up the slide deck real quick, and it's long, but we're only going to look at three of the slides. So if we can have Julio bring that up, and I'm going to have you just kick it off and, and, and give us a, a sample picture of what this thing looks like. Yeah, just the, the the big picture first, kind of the why, you know, why, why do this is that as we drive the transition to a zero carbon grid so that we can uh, tackle climate change, um, there are several big themes at place. First, we have to decarbonize our grid, and we have to do that in a way that maintains reliability and enables growth in total grid output, because in parallel with decarbonizing our grid, we also want to electrify a lot of other parts of our economy that currently are not electrified today, electric vehicles being kind of the obvious one, you know, I think that probably most folks are familiar with. And so, that is driving a huge increase in demand for carbon-free energy, and uh, and hydropower plays has this very interesting characteristic in that it really um, plays a pivotal role to underpin that transition to a carbon-free grid, because hydropower complements wind and solar very well. Um, at the end of the day, we're going to need everything to make this journey as fast as we can, and um, because hydropower has these characteristics of reliability and flexibility um, that allows it to to be a good complement basically to to help be the you know be one part of the foundation if you will so that you know when you go to turn the lights on the lights come on and once they are on they're staying on steadily and not like flickering on and off etc again kind of an easy way to grasp grid reliability um, and so for us, that was that was you know a great legacy of our existing hydropower today. Um, as I said, it's about it's the majority of our renewable energy globally. It's a big chunk of U.S. production, um, an even bigger chunk, for example, of production in the European Union. And with our technology, we basically saw a way to tackle one of the biggest issues, really hampering two critical things in hydro. If we go to the next slide, I can just kind of talk through a couple big, like just to frame the market. So. We have an opportunity in hydro to um, upgrade the existing fleet. So hydropower is characterized by the fact it's been around for almost a century in many cases. And it a lot of the existing installed base is old and needs to be modernized so that it meets modern environmental requirements, particularly around fish passage. So that's one part of our market opportunity. Um, in the US, that's about four gigs. Um, in Europe, that's about 20 gigs. And uh, uh, you know, so that's kind of like our very specific target, like near-term target market focus. Obviously, there's a there's like 13 terawatts of global, there's a there's a really big overall global potential, but the near-term focus for us is in those two markets. And then the other opportunity is to unlock growth. So new hydropower, bringing new megawatts to the grid. And there, the opportunity, again, in thinking US and Europe is really um, in starting first in taking existing non-powered water infrastructure. So these are dams that exist for flood control, navigation, and water supply, don't produce energy today, and with fish safe compact appropriate technology, 
that we've developed now can produce hydro going forward. And again, in the US it's about 12 gigs, in Europe it's a little bit over 35. So that's the opportunity that we set out to solve. And I think where we are today is we've now developed a um, solution that makes that possible. So it's a new, it's a patented, it, you know, it's, it's a very specific uh, fancy shape to the blade. Um, if you're familiar with the wind turbine, the blade that you see spinning in a, in a hydro turbine, there are blades that spin in the water. And we basically have made a way to make those blades fish safe. Conventional blades are very thin. They kind of look like knives maybe. That's a little bit of a, but, but they're very thin. And bottom line is they're not very fish friendly. Um, and with our technology, we have made now a very thick blade, has a very thick leading edge that basically deflects fish around it, but it has a very efficient shape. So it's able to operate at 90 to 94% efficiency. And that's key because at the end of the day, we don't want to compromise on power output. We, we want both, right? We want to generate power efficiently and cost effectively, and we want to be good for the environment. Yeah, that, that's that's a fantastic rundown, and it's safe for the fish, which I, I, I think is is really, really neat, right? Are you the only ones that are doing this? There are several others who've been working on developing fish-safe um, technology. At this point, we definitively are the market leader. Like We have now done a number of third-party validated tests that have proven greater than 99% safe passage of fish. We have had several tests that had 100% safe passage in the tests. Um, and across a range of species. Uh, and so I'd say at this point, sure. we feel that we are out in front of the market in terms of having an offering that spans the a large portion of the market in terms of the types of applications and has demonstrated fish safety and efficiency. So last question for you for, for a minute, but how did Breakthrough Energy Partners get involved? So I started talking with Libby um, and the folks at Breakthrough a couple years before our before they they um, uh, participated and uh, led our our second round, um, and uh, and I think that's maybe one element we can we can dig into further. So so I think you know built we started when we were probably at a stage that was a little too early. Uh, we hadn't yet proven uh, some of the things that we needed to prove, and then as we got through those proof points, uh, that was able to solidify. Um, well, I, I mean, Libby, sure. Libby can speak to it further, yeah. but, but you know, that was definitely the trajectory we had. We had early conversations, wasn't quite the right fit at the right time. And then as we achieved a couple important milestones, then it became a, a good fit. Yeah, Libby, let, let's talk to you for a minute. I, before we get to, to the, the investor relation uh, relationship here, tell me how this company fits within Breakthrough's mission. Sure, happy to. Yeah, I'm really happy to be here. Happy to have this conversation with Gia. Um, just awesome CEO and leader in the field and um, and in climate tech. Um, so Breakthrough Energy Ventures is um, a venture fund that invests in early stage innovations that can reduce greenhouse gas emissions to address climate change. And that means we invest across the entire economy, actually not just energy as our name would suggest, uh, but it's really much broader. And so we really break the economy down into five different sectors. Electricity is certainly one of them, um, but also transportation, manufacturing, buildings in the built environment, and food and ag. And we'll invest super, super early down to you know, a couple hundred K and uh, as a first check, we'll invest late. And our model is to really partner with CEOs and, um, and support the company through its growth trajectory. Um, 
and happy to tell you a little bit more about our model, but to get to the question about how Natel fits into our strategy within that broad scope that I mentioned, um, really across that broad scope, we look for um, innovations that can reduce climate change or reduce uh, emissions. And we actually set a threshold for that. Um, we don't wanna take, you know, we don't wanna play small ball, we wanna take really big swings. And so we start to prioritize the big swings around opportunities to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And then from there, we look for outstanding investment opportunities. And so within the electricity space, um, we focus on how to, um, how to develop technologies for zero carbon baseload electricity generation, um, how to further decrease the cost of intermittent renewable sources like wind and solar, and then we also look at ways to have flexibility across the grid, like uh, energy storage, particularly long duration energy storage, transmission, things like that. And as Gia mentioned, hydro is already a huge portion of um, electricity generation. But uh, what she didn't mention is that its growth is fairly limited at this point because of two barriers that we saw. And uh, the first one being further environmental concerns. You would think that the environmental community would be all about hydro. Um, but in fact, uh, the, the issues with fish passage and other ecosystem disruption has actually made uh, the environmental community pretty resistant to hydro and has slowed a lot of hydro sure. development. If you think about it, it, it can be quite disruptive uh, to ecosystems. The second um, has been cost, um, whether you're talking about really large hydro projects. There have been several studies that show um, large projects tend to have cost overruns. Or if you're looking at distributed hydro, smaller projects, um, the costs tend to be pretty prohibitive. And uh, so we were looking for opportunities to address both of those constraints to enable this resource to continue to grow and provide really important baseload and dispatchable clean electricity. And uh, we had been following uh, Natel for a really long time and the uh, innovations looked quite promising. And uh, once we had the confidence that the turbine that Gia mentioned could solve both of those issues, we became certainly very interested from the impact perspective. And, but that really just gets us through the first filter that we look at. After that, we look for outstanding investment opportunities. And we started working with Gia on the overall business model that we thought could present that opportunity for really great investment, uh, which we can get into more, but um, it was really first getting comfortable with uh, the technology's ability to kind of uh, sure. unlock the potential on the impact side and then uh, the investment opportunity. Now, now Gia, you said you, you're probably a little too early when you went to them. Why do you say that? Uh, precisely because I think that at that point, um, we were actually, when we first started the conversations, we were, uh, just it was just before we finished up a few steps with respect to technology proof points. Mm. And so I think that we were able to get through those proof points. And the other in parallel element was to um, start to more clearly define, you know, per the second point that Libby was making, the business model. So how, how to take the product and get it into the market in a way that could scale uh, and generate return. And where we are now is, is over the last year uh, and a half or so, we basically have added into the business, um, in addition to making doing the, the turbine mm -hmm. piece, um, really at the end of the day, uh, 
um, how do our turbines generate energy and uh, and see a real use? And it's because they are operating and deployed in projects. And so for us, you know, finding a way to unlock that project deployment path has been the critical enabling uh, you know another the next next critical step for us and so I think once we had defined like this is the path like get go a little bit further upstream start to drive the market um, uh, through some smart project development uh, and uh, like asset focused sure. uh, elements um, I think that was a key enabling piece and now we're on the cusp of well we've now put together a about 130 megawatt portfolio and are now on the cusp of getting that financed uh, to go forward. Now, I, I have to assume that Breakthrough was not the only VC firm that you probably presented too early to, right? What, what advice would you have for founders about presenting early or going to VC firms early? I honestly think that it's you know for for whoever in the, in the startup is you know, responsible for fundraising. Um, it's 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 in my view it's critical, uh, particularly for um, company you know for the for for the type of work that we're doing where it just takes time to yes. get through the you know the, not just the technology process sometimes it's technology development other times it's product development and then there's also like business model and and product market fit um, all of those can take some time um, for things in climate tech, particularly things in the industrial um, or hard tech space. And so I think it's it's really important to reach out early and start to build relationships with investors so that, um, so that as an entrepreneur, you can learn from the investors to understand, as Libby really like um, very clearly outlined, Breakthrough has a two-step process. It's they're, mm -hmm. they're, they're, you know, um, both things are important. You have to be able to meet um, both the metrics on impact and the metrics on building a good business and being a good investment opportunity. And so um, if you engage early, you start, you're, you're able to, to build the re personal relationships. Um, you, you learn from that. You start to understand how investors are going to judge and evaluate your business plan. And in the process of going through those conversations, it will help you as an entrepreneur figure out how to hone your business plan. And, yeah. uh, and I think that's, that's just, it, it's really, even if, even if those, even if those investors never invest, like you will learn from that and that will be useful and help you build a better business. So Libby, Libby talk me. jump in on this point, because I think it's really important to understand what too early means. It can mean categorically too early for a fund. And it's important if you are a CEO or raising funding to know does a certain fund only invest in seed and A, or do they only start looking at B and C, or do they have a revenue threshold or something like that? Uh, that is one type of too early. There's another type of too early, um, which is more about, uh, does the firm have a thesis built up in that space? Are they able to be comfortable deploying capital into that space? In the case of Natel for us, as I mentioned, because we'll invest super early, we'll invest you know, down to a couple hundred K, um, and we'll even develop companies really kind of in partnership with an entrepreneur um, really as a new co. In the case of Hydro, at the time when we started speaking with Natel, we really didn't have a thesis there. And we are a very thesis-driven organization. Not all investors are. Um, but for us, we had to really um, make sure that we understood the industry more than just our general familiarity from being in the climate space. And that timeline just did not align with Natel's 
fundraising cadence um, at in the beginning. And so there's there's both kind of um, you know stage specific too early, but then there's more of like a process and expertise early. And so as entrepreneurs, it's really important to understand. Do the investors you're talking to have familiarity with the space? Are they experts in the space? Do they have a thesis? Um, and if they don't, as Gia mentioned, you can help educate them. And as they push on your business model and other things um, and help them come up to speed, and it might not work out for the first time, but is as the case uh, happened with Natel for us, it worked out kind of in the next cycle sure. of fundraising. I was hoping you can give some practical advice here. What's the best way to approach you? If, if it is a good climate tech company within your thesis, how would you like to be approached? Uh, at Breakthrough, I mean, we are we are open to speaking, you know, with any entrepreneurs who have ideas that they want to push forward. Um, uh, you know, we're some we can be somewhat overwhelmed, so don't take it personally if we don't respond right away, or um, you know, if if you try to hit us on LinkedIn and we just don't see it or something like sure. that, just, you know, be persistent, be patient. Don't be shy to like bump something up in an, uh, in an inbox. Um, so I'd say there's no right or wrong way. Um, certainly people that we know that can introduce you helps to, you know, make sure that that email registers. Um, mm -hmm. but we really try to reach outside of our networks as well. Um, so any and all ways, please, reach out, get in touch, be patient, be persistent. Don't take offense if we're slow to respond. Man, that, that's good advice for reaching journalists too. Same exact advice, right? Yes. So Gia, back to you, but but you did this a lot and you heard no a lot. How did you handle that that emotional toll? Um, well, I think that the a core element is to have a grounding in why you are doing this, you know, your, your venture in the first place. And, and I do think it's useful to revisit that why, um, so that, so in our case, we've had like our, our mission, what we set out to do has remained largely unchanged from the beginning. And we knew it was a combination of cost. Well, at the end of the day, it's cost, but getting to that price point of reliable renewable energy via hydro required answering these core questions around the product and does it have the technical characteristics around fish and efficiency could we get the cost down you know cost sure. to where they need to be and then could we unlock growth and so we checked in so i would check in regularly against those things do i think we are headed in the right direction on those things um, do I think there's still a reason to do this? Like, is there still, you know, demand out there? Like, do we still think that the, do I still think that climate change, like that what we are doing is aligned with the problem we are trying to solve, bottom line. And for me, at least that that's probably the single biggest, you know, element, uh, or that's one very big element to ground it. Um, I think the other is a co-founder, uh, to be blunt. Like it's, it's a, there's a lot of work to do um, in building a company. Um, yeah. And having a co-founder who was focused on technology and products and which allowed me to focus on investors, business, regulatory, um, and policy, because regulatory and policy absolutely impacts everything in energy and climate in one way, shape or form. And so, um, you know, if one person had to do all of that, I, I and there are people who do, and they're amazing, I, but it, it's, it's a, it's a, it, for me, at least, I think the fact that I, you know, having a co-founder and then over time having a team that 
was is really great um is also has just been critical and, and correct me if i'm wrong but your co-founder is your brother right that's correct yes yeah yeah how, how was thanksgiving with that when you're founding a renewable company right it's awesome in our case okay so i mean to be to be blunt is it uh, do we sometimes disagree? Absolutely, right? Are those disagreements sometimes going to be a little bit more pointed? Like, like there's, there's at the yes. end of the day, we're related, right? Like, like sure. we're siblings, right? We grew up together, and so, um, so I would say in our case, in general, that's been beneficial because we get to the point quickly, and, mm. um, and again, in our case, we have. A lot of like that's enabled by trust. <laughs> it's enabled by the fact, like again, we focus on very different things that are are all necessary. So we don't have much overlap in our responsibilities or our like expertise and skill sets. Um, sure. And yeah, it, it, like it's 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 been really great. I, I've I've never had a had a company on with with brother sister co founders. So congrats on that. I think that's, that's great, but I do need to switch gears a little bit here because you guys had a very long development cycle. And I was hoping you could talk to both of you talk to on, on how to raise funds that do not dilute your cap table over these long development cycles. Libby, can we start with you? What, what advice would you have for founders sure. like that? Where should they yeah. look? Um, looking for non-dilutive capital sources is really important for some of these um, tougher tech ventures. Um, problem is it's a lot harder to rely on it because it's very grant oriented. Um, but, you know, scour the earth for grants that could make sense. Um, try to try to have a lot of backup plans because the process is opaque. And sometimes the ones that you think you're a perfect fit for, you don't even make the first cut. You don't even get in, invited to apply for the full uh, proposal. Um, and some that you think are kind of a stretch, you end up getting it. So um, cast kind of a wide net. And you know, frankly, that's the same with investors, I think, cast kind of a wide net, um, but also be purposeful and targeted and why you're reaching out to the people you are. Um, and then just be aware of a lot of different programs. So um, you know, the Department of Energy has several different programs um, related to specific technologies or slightly more technology agnostic as ARPA-E. Uh, but there's also NSF funding, um, FDA in some cases. Um, there are a couple of other earlier stage programs. Um, uh, NSF i I think, is also a good kind of translational program from mm -hmm. uh, science to early commercial. Um, Activate is another program that also came out of the Department of Energy. Um, and then at Breakthrough, we started um, a fellows program called Breakthrough Energy Fellows, uh, that is meant to provide basically the first funding um, and support for early stage technologies that really need to um, do some technology development that's no longer interesting in an academic setting, but might be still really early for a venture type um, investment. Uh, so those those are a handful of, um, of resources out sure. there, but definitely a good strategy to pursue. Would you advise startups hiring somebody to write those grant applications, or is that something they can do themselves? I kind of think, especially in the early days, it's something they can do themselves or they can find if they need some help kind of on a contract basis. I don't know, Gia, is that your experience? Yeah, I yeah. we have we have written all of our grants ourselves. Um, and I do think that uh, maybe just add a few things. I think that 
for your very first few grant opportunities, yes, you're you're being responsible. Like, well, okay, I think that it, it's good to cast a, a broad net, figure out if there are specific programs that are going to be uh, that seem to be a good fit with, in general, what you are doing. And in our case, it was the Department of Energy. At that point, we then the first application we did, we just like scrambled, got it in, and we we were declined on that first one. And then we did our did a bit more homework. There was it was a fairly quick turnaround to the next one. It was a little bit less of a scramble, but still a scramble. Got it in. We were awarded that one. And then at that point, we had a basis to start to engage a bit more with the program office directly. And so we then started what is now at this point a long-running process of engaging with the program office. So this is which whichever agency or program that is relevant for you. We um, but when there was not a funding active funding opportunity, we made a point of meeting with the program office and mm -hmm. saying, here are like, here's what we are doing. Here are a list of things where we think that grant funding would be highly transformational. And we just did that over and over and over again, because at the end of the day, how do grant solicitations come into existence? They come into existence because the program managers are looking for ideas of what to fund, and oftentimes they get those ideas from researchers, companies, et cetera, who are in the space. Yeah. And it takes time, but then it means that the next year, the funding opportunities hopefully start to be pick up on some of the ideas you've actually started to seed into the process. So. And look yeah. out for requests for information as well, because... Yeah the department, like all these offices, um, try to solicit ideas and input through these requests for information. Um, they're put out there just like a call for proposals or their written documents. Um, and they also run workshops to do the same thing. And, and similarly, these are, you know, public servants and they're very committed to public service. And, it, you know, they're also very busy. They serve a whole country, but they will take a meeting. So again, be persistent and they're there to, uh, spend taxpayer dollars and um, and to support the economy. So your time, uh, their time is definitely worth um, your meeting. So just make sure you try to reach out and be persistent again to get on their calendar. And a quick, quick plug for our climate event next week. We have an interview with Secretary Granholm, the, the Secretary of Energy. So this can be a major topic for us next week as well, because it is important that startups have access to capital that, that does doesn't transfer ownership to, to a whole lot of investors, right? So I, I have two more questions here. And, and Libby, this is for you. Breakthrough Energy Ventures was founded by Bill Gates. And we're curious how involved he is still. He's pretty involved. Um, actually, uh, I just stepped out of a, um, a, I'm here in DC for a series of meetings um, that Bill is involved in. And I just stepped out uh, to join this discussion here. So he's, he's really involved. Um, uh, he's the chair of our board. Uh, we've got several of our, um, of our LPs in the fund who also serve on our board and that really set the um, kind of the structure of, of how we think about investing, the timelines, the types of challenges he wants to see us take on. Uh, we make investment decisions independently from our from the investors in the fund, from our LPs and from our board, but they certainly give us feedback on things that they think, that, you know, the types of challenges that we take on, and if uh, if if they think that that's kind of aligned with the vision. 
Yeah. And, and I said I had a second question, but I lied because you guys already answered it. But th that takes us to our time anyway. And, and Libby, Gia, thank you so much for this, this, this conversation. This has been really enlightening. I learned a lot about grants and, and I hope everyone else did too. So with that, we're going to move on to our ne next, uh, next segment here. We have pitch practice. Now, Libby, Gia, you guys have never done this with us before, but the, uh, the process is a lot of fun. We've, we've selected three companies from our audience here, and they're going to present for two minutes. And then you guys have four minutes to critique their pitch or talk to them about their company or give them advice, anything that, that you, you see fit. All right. Okay. Well, let's uh, hopefully bring up the first one. We have Diane Little. Diane Little is, is representing an airship company. I love airships. Diane, are you there? I am. I'm here. Hi there. So I well, I love your Wonder Woman poster behind you. That's yeah. That's I wonderful. was painting, not a poster. Yes. <laughs> that's great. Okay, Diane. So you have two minutes to pitch and we start now. Okay. Hello, I'm Diana Little from Enuma Aerospace. Our vision is to decarbonize long-haul heavy lift transportation with a novel vacuum lifting system for airships and aerostats. Airships have been relegated to history, but in their heyday, they did hundreds of successful transatlantic flights. Since no energy needs to be expended to keep them aloft, they're far more sustainable than airplanes and have the added benefits of allowing point-to-point -point VTOL travel with very little in the way of infrastructure. Imagine your containers flying right over the port traffic jams and landing at an inland port close to your electric last mile transport. The main reason we don't see airships flying the skies today is not because of the Hindenburg disaster, it's because of helium. Helium is rare, expensive, non-renewable, and tied to the natural gas industry. When airships were forced to transition from hydrogen to helium, they lost the ability to vent their lifting gas and also their economic viability. They became more difficult to land and difficult to pilot. Going up is easy, but in order to efficiently carry goods and people, you have to be able to land. Our airship will eliminate all the problems with helium. Our lifting cell is literally filled with nothing, or precisely partial vacuum, which is lighter than air. The level of vacuum can be easily controlled for elevation changes, including landing. In addition, airships offer a large surface area to cover with photovoltaics, so they can be truly zero emissions. For cargo alone, we estimate a TAM of 198 billion and a SAM of 59 billion, plus a global emissions reduction impact of 9.4 gigatons by 2050. On our R&D runway towards long-haul heavy lift, we have three aerostats with their own impactful missions, markets, and early revenue streams. Tethered aerostats for wildfire sentinels, untethered autonomous aerostats for weather data platforms, and remote piloted aerostats for civil defense. Thank you. That was great. And just as a, as a recap, we haven't seen these before and they didn't have any practice. They were picked minutes ago, so well done. Libby, let's start with you for feedback. Sure, I guess um, just, a, just a question. Can you say a little bit more about the structure? So you must have some sort of rigid structure that yes. you pump down. Um, and yeah, can you just say a little bit more about the structure and then the overall economics uh, that you're comparing it to? Sure, the structure is a, um, it is a, essentially a geodesic dome, but with some extra architectural and, and interesting design principles associated with it. We do have a patent that was submitted in 2020 for the lifting cell and it's um, and it's been published. It has not yet been awarded because the patent office is very slow, but we haven't had any any like pushback on it. Um, and it 
It is made of carbon fiber composites, and so it's very lightweight. Um, the idea for vacuum lift transport was actually proposed in the 1600s, but at the time, the materials and also the lifting cell kind of structure didn't exist. Um, in terms of economics, we've um, we've figured out that it would be about 17 cents per ton mile, which is a little bit more expensive than all ground transport, except recently, actually, because ground transport has gone so far up in price. It's about the same speed as a truck or a tractor trailer, but without any of the um, impediments and much, much less expensive than air freight currently is. And it actually fills a hole that it just, there is nothing that does that right now. Got it. Um, great. And then, um, any sort of commercial feedback? Um, we've had, yeah, we've had people that, we, you know, we're still very early stage, but we've had um, people that we've talked to that said if they could buy it now, they would, um, especially with the global supply chain problems. We're still working on the lifting cell. Our first stage is actually to build the uh, world record setting demonstrator. Great. Um, so in terms of feedback, it's hard to know in just a couple of minutes, but yeah, I think those are all really great, um, great attributes that would be great to highlight if you can. Um, and then um, I think talking to as many customers as possible and even trying to get some um, written statement or LOI or you know something of that nature. I'm sure these are things that um, you're working on feverishly. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, the more customers you can talk to, the better just to understand um, what's really critical to them um, in addition to the, the economic and uh, competitive points that you mentioned. Great, I'm just, Gia. Yeah, I'm just curious on, you mentioned that you, the three um, kind of market or, or, or product pathways that you called out were, I believe, so tethered, um, tethered, for wildfire, uh, autonomous, non-tethered for weather, and then the last was a transport point-to-point, -point, correct? Um, no, the last one was for, um, it's probably defense. It's, oh, defense. Uh, yeah, because yeah, aerostats are currently used for defense. They're, they're for surveillance and for um, drug interdiction. They're, they're used on borders, things like that. Got it. So given that those are the, do you see customers in those specific three applications, and for those customers, what's the what is their um, like competitive alternative that you need to need to beat? Yeah, it's it's complicated because there are three, right? So so for wildfire, um, they're currently using helicopters and drones, but those are very expensive and also not very you know renewable. Um, they don't use fire towers anymore too much. This would actually be more like a fire tower because it can be persistent. It can stay up forever. Um, well, maybe not forever, but along current aerostats have a problem that they have to be brought down to be refilled with helium because one of the other problems with helium is that it leaks out of anything. Mm -hmm. um, so aerostats are currently used for a lot of things, but they can only stay up maybe two weeks, maybe four weeks, maybe a couple months, depends on the one. Okay, and I, I know we're at time. So I think the thing that I would, the one thing I would just note here is that um, calling out how those things, which you then would be spending dollars on, how those align in the revenue path and are they, like, do you need all, like if, if each of those three are relatively small parts of your 
actual revenue goal, then why, then I think explaining why you need, like, these are, this is more detail, but like why you need actually those three, can you do just one to prove the tech and then focus on if the big market and the market where you're going to really make your margin is transport, then, um, that would be the one my just bit of feedback is to simplify the three prototype paths, basically. Yeah. yeah. They, they each have actually pretty big markets themselves. And okay. We want and that would be great. And that's great. <laughs> Thank you. That, that, this, this is a wonderful pitch. I love airships, like I said. And, and real quick before you go, what's your relationship with the mission patches behind you? Um, the Greek um, version of Diana is Artemis, and these are all Artemis missions, mission patches for the for to the moon. Yeah. I just like them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I like space stuff too. Uh, all right. Very good. Thank you, Diane. Thanks. We'll see you again. Okay, well, next one, we have Brian Gilman from Evolve Hydrogen. I wonder if he's going to have a space background too. Brian, are you there? I see you. If you can turn on your mic and your camera. Mike? How am I doing? Am I coming through okay? Yes, of course. Yeah. All right, you have two minutes to present your startup starting now. Hi, everybody. Uh, green hydrogen is a solution that the, the world is looking for to fill in uh, some of the gaps with uh, energy and other commercial processes, but it is a problematic solution. Um, first of all, trying to get uh, the price of green hydrogen uh, acceptable and uh, getting it a little bit more reliable. Uh, Evolve Hydrogen has looked at all the problems with um, Electrolyzers, which is the uh, unit that makes green hydrogen. We went back to the drawing board and came up with a new principle of how to uh, electrolyze uh, water into um, hydrogen. First of all, we redesigned the electrolyzer to start using other water sources, not just deionized water. It can use uh, heavier waters. Uh, we've had results in tap water. We've had results in simulated seawater that prove that we can make pure hydrogen from it, which is rather convenient because it allows us to have a much broader feedstock. The other thing we did was to uh, create an electrolyzer, uh, not from metals, but from injection molding polymers, uh, electric conductive. This means that we can make electrolyzers far faster, uh, for, for less capital and operating costs, and that they can last out in the field far longer. We're hoping to uh, raise money to uh, have a minimal viable product in the next 18 months to prove to the world that we can make a very inexpensive electrolyzer that can be out in the field with far less maintenance and uh, will actually start helping us fill in the gap for green hydrogen around the planet. Thank you, everybody. My name is Brian Gilman from Evolve Hydrogen, and it's time to evolve hydrogen. Very smooth, Brian. Thank you for that. Thank you. All right. Gia, can we start with you? Yeah. Um, just curious to understand a little bit more about the um, uh, technology itself. And so can you, can you, uh, uh, yeah, basically, how is it distinct from what is currently in the market today? Well, currently we've thrown away all the platinum. We throw away all the palladium, and now we're focused on electroconductive polymer. Uh, it's rather unique. This, this is actually uh, one of our separators. It comes out of an injection mold. And if you notice, 
I'm picking up with my bare hands, which is something I can't do with a proton exchange membrane without getting very sick. Uh, it's a very unique polymer. And the nice thing about it is we can change it on the fly and use the same old injection molds. We we'll have the same tolerances every time we produce it. They're literally carbon copies of one another. Uh, the nice thing about this technology is um, it means far less capex. It means far less opex. And from the looks of things, uh, we are mostly certain that we can outlive most electrolyzers uh, several times. Uh, the actual number is uh, going to be what we're going to be developing on this. Uh, we are working on trying to get this electric conductivity up in the next couple of months, and we have plenty of plans to do that. Uh, but the beautiful thing about this is that um, we are bringing the costs of making an electrolyzer down, and we're bringing the speed of producing it up exponentially. It's a rather unique polymer. Uh, for instance, it uses all sorts of different kind of carbons and some carbon technology. In fact, if I was to drop this on the table, <laughs> it doesn't sound like a plastic or feel like one at, at, at all. The nice thing about it is that we can always change uh, dimensions for different uses. I mean, it could do, it could also function for things like chloralkali or other forms of gases. Uh, we could also, we also offer the ability to have not only just oxygen and hydrogen, but a third product. For instance, uh, whatever floating in the water can be isolated a lot easier. Uh, things like lithium, um, different salts that actually have a rather nice price to it. Uh, mm. All of these things are possible with this because we're not using just deionized water. But let's bring Libby in here. Libby, do you have any feedback? Yeah, um, maybe I'll, I have kind of a question in the form of feedback. Um, so I'll give you the feedback and feel free to respond. Mm. Uh, but I think anytime I see something that's like a magic material, I always look for, um, you know, can someone explain it in really basic terms? Uh, because electrolysis is a catalyzed reaction. And so you're removing the catalyst with a magic material. So my advice would be in your main pitch, try to really simplify how that works and get kind of a light bulb to go off in someone's head. So there's, okay. My feedback and question all in one. Great. All right. Anything else? And, and feel free to answer that if you have a super no. simple explanation for the magic material and how it works. The simple explanation, basically, uh, we're working on some other catalysts uh, uh, to control the oxygen side, but mostly it's carbon uh, and carbon electroconductivity that we're focusing on for the uh, electrode material, but we're using a similar material for the separation. Uh, now after that, there's, we're getting to NDA material. But basically what we're trying to do is simplify the um, electronic uh, signal from one post of one electrode to another and not have anything slow it down with the transition of the protons going through this particular membrane. Uh, you know, it's a different approach, but it's uh, it's unique and we are getting results. Great. Very good. All right, Last Brian. comment I would have is make sure you have some economics. I think people who are looking at hydrogen have a pretty clear, you know, cost entitlement. We're looking for a dollar a kg or whatever. That would be... Yeah my other piece of advice. Yeah, thank you. Great. Well, thank Great. you so Super much, Brian. Best of luck to you. Okay. All right. We have one more. And thank you again, Gian Libby, for doing this. This has been very helpful. 
Uh, we have one more. We have Arthur. Arthur from Nero. I think I said that right. There's an extra U in there. Arthur, are you there? I am here. I am here. All can right. You can you turn me? on your camera? There you are. Got it. Got it. Fantastic. All right. Take it away. You have two minutes. Super. Uh, so, hi, everybody. Uh, thank you, TechCrunch. Uh, my name is Arthur McCallum. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Duro. Uh, we're an AI infrastructure company. And today, I'd like to talk to you about our uh, environmentally sustainable AI cloud solutions. Um, so, for the next two minutes, please consider two basic ideas. Number one, uh, we all, I think we all agree that AI is important, uh, that it's growing incredibly quickly. Um, and, and, and I'd like to posit that we're also at the very beginning um, of AI as a technology. The second point is that uh, we believe it's our shared responsibility to build AI infrastructure that's both ethical and sustainable. So what do we mean by sustainable? Um, ICT, information communica communication technology, takes up about 10% of total electricity consumption currently. That's, look, uh, according to the European Union, expected to double by 2030. Um, within ICT, there's one tech that's growing a lot faster than others, and, 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 and that's, that's AI. Um, uh, the neural networks uh, uh, that, that are, are growing in size at a massive, massive rate, um, and I'll use the GTP models um, as an example. Back in 2018, um, uh, GTP1 was 100 million parameters. Two years later, it went to 175 billion parameters, and GPT-4, which should come out in 2023, is rumored to have 100 trillion parameters. So over five years, we're seeing a 100,000x increase in the size of large language models. Now, they don't, they don't, uh, the training for these models doesn't scale exactly literally, but it does increase substantially even after opti optimization that could be done. So how much carbon footprint are we talking about for one training run of GP, uh, GTP4? We're talking about, about 300,000 metric tons of CO2, and that's equivalent to what it takes to run the city of Miami for a month. And that's for one training run. Uh, we don't know how many training runs OpenAI is doing in the background. So um, obviously that's unsustainable. Uh, we need to find a new way to do that if models are going to continue to grow. So, um, um, so what do we do as, as Neuro? One, we start with uh, the most advanced AI compute in the world, uh, NVIDIA DGX machines. Next, uh, we put on top of it um, our complete MLOps software stack. Um, that decreases time and resources required for model development up to 50%. Um, and then finally, we run it all on 100% green geothermal um, and hydro energy um, in our data center in Iceland. Um, so in short, if you're building AI, come talk to us and we'll help you go zero emission. Um, if you're already producing zero emission energy, we'll help you put, to, put it to work on green AI. Thank you very much. Thank you for that, Arthur. All right, Libby, let's start with you. Sure. Um, so, yeah, definitely spot on with the uh, growth in computation and uh, the energy needs for powering computation. Um, I'm just curious how this technology is scalable. Um, or, or first, I guess, what percentage of the energy consumption reduction comes from the more efficient AI piece of the stack mm -hmm. versus just using um, geothermal? We're we're decreasing. Well, the geothermal is um, uh, uh, what you say is uh, reduction of the carbon footprint. Um, oh, uh, let me answer it more specifically. Roughly 50% um, decrease in training time and resources is what we're seeing from people moving uh, from in-house built MLOps systems where they're experimenting and, and making mistakes and waste, um, et cetera, uh, versus when they come onto our platform. And that we have for multiple customers. Got it. And 
And how like scalable is that beyond just the kind of location that you have? Um, I'm assuming that that can just be replicated anywhere. Even if it's a carbon intensive grid, it would still reduce energy consumption and therefore emissions. Absolutely, absolutely. So we, we, we can do, we do that on AWS, we do it on GCP, we do it on Azure, we do it on on-prem, uh, do it in corporate clouds, um, and we've done it in our own. Um, we just, we ran into a lot of problems finding like uh, uh, um, uh, large amounts of GPUs from the big providers. And so we went out, we built our own, and then we decided to do it um, uh, on zero on zero emission. Um, the ability to scale um, the cloud on zero emission is a, of course a function of finding that hydro power. The good news is the Nordics are way ahead of us um, on doing that. Sweden, Norway, um, Iceland, um, there's a lot of opportunity there. Gia, any feedback? Yeah, are you, um, uh, so, so just so I understand, so the, your specific innovation is in, is a data center or is we, software? Um, our specific innovations that we have developed as a technology are around the MLOps stack. That's where we started with it. Um, this is a competitor to an AWS SageMaker, um, uh, but it is completely infrastructure agnostic. You can port it, um, uh, you know, from AWS to GCP to your to your home computer. Okay, so there's an innovation there. The second innovate um, that that also helps decrease the training times, the training uh, iterations that you have to do and decrease the overall cost that you have. Um, the second innovation is actually going out and putting these putting these great machines together with the software stack in a, um, in a zero emission um, electricity environment. Got it, okay, okay. And then in terms of um, the, so then you see a 50% reduction in on the energy side. And, um, and then, and I, I guess then the other question is, is what have you done, like, um, in terms of backing that number up, where, yep. it, like, what's the, the current, um, yeah, where does that currently stand in terms of what you have demonstrated and existing sure. customer base? Sure, sure. We, I mean, we have customer demonstrations that we can talk about, you know, testimonials that we've done it. Um, currently, we're about 80% uh, capacity um, on the cloud, uh, on the machines that we have now. That goes up and down, depending upon the months. Um, and we'd be happy to kind of explore further. Um, uh, when, when companies come from building it in-house, um, or using kind of hyperscale uh, stacks coming to us, which is a customized stack. Um, you know, the efficiencies we're seeing are, are, are pretty broad across across all clients for various use cases, NLP, you know, computer vision, uh, you know, GAN-based metaverse stuff, um, all sorts of different use cases. And for those customers is primary, is, is, is what's the, is it, is, are they switching because of cost? Or they switching they're, they're switching because of difficulty and scaling. Um, either their their ML engineers are being told to be ML ops engineers, so essentially DevOps engineers, um, and they can't do it. It's too difficult to do. Um, it's not within a wheelhouse in their wheelhouse, um, uh, or the um, the tools that are out there, the uh, the ML ops platforms that are out there um, don't fit their needs. You know, aren't keeping up with the technology. Don't aren't interoperable uh, with the universe of tools that are out there. We're all about interoperability. We don't build what someone else has built. We plug it in. So weights and biases, Selden, Kubeflow, uh, you know, MLflow, you plug them in. All right, Arthur. Thank you so much for your picture. You're, you're very passionate about this. And I like that a lot. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very yeah. much. Okay. Well, well, thank you. Thank you, Arthur. And, and Libby, Gia, this has been fascinating. Uh, I absolutely loved it. Next week, we, are, we of course, are in person at TechCrunch uh, 
sessions climate event. And then the following week on June 22nd, we have Canvas Ventures and new breaks. And they're going to come on and talking about doing break jobs and on-demand startups. So with that, thank you, everyone, for watching. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.